Welcome everybody back to Weekly Waits. We're still mates, but we took a break. Cause of COVID, we stay at our place. Weekly Waits. Weekly Waits with Alex and Will. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Yearly Waits. Um, I'm Will. You stole my joke. Oh, well, you're going to make that one yeah. as well. <laughs> I've been thinking about that for like nine months almost. Um, it's been a while since we recorded an episode. And so this one's going to be just a little bit of a sort of intro to what we're doing, where we've been, and so on. And then after that, we'll we'll probably get rolling on maybe some more informative content on hopefully a slightly more regular basis, like at least yearly. That's that's my that's my current goal. Um, Alex, how you been? Uh, pretty good. Lots of uh, exciting things going on in my life. Go on. Um, so, for anyone who follows me, you'd already know all this um, anyway, but Chrissy and I got married in March, and then we went on our honeymoon, um, we bought a house, and now we're having a baby. That's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. That's also going to shatter the dreams of somebody. There was a while, like a while back, a listener who wrote to me asking if you and I were a couple, and I told her in no uncertain terms that yes, we were. Um, <laughs> and, and so if that poor girl still listens, she's going to feel betrayed on all fronts because not only are we not together, but your heart is taken. Um, really exciting news. I was obviously at the wedding, last minute invitation. Um, but, but with the baby, is uh, do you guys know the sex or are you keeping it a secret or are you not finding out or what's the... So we don't know yet, but we will be finding out. Um, we're waiting until lockdown ends before we do a little sex reveal, but we're going to keep it private and just get um, a photographer in our house and okay. then we'll like open a box which will tell us the sex and then we'll get photos of the moment and everything like that. There is actually a really heartwarming video. I can't remember who posted it, whether it was you or Chrissy of when you found out that Chrissy was pregnant um, on Instagram, that actually brought a little tear to my eye because your reaction was like, was very cute. Yeah, it's it's um, been a bit stressful trying and I've been kind of like thinking that something was wrong. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is, I'm sure a normal feeling. Um, but like if you're, if you're not successful with getting pregnant, you feel like, you know, there's something wrong with you or something wrong with your partner or something that you need to change to make it happen or whatever. So... We didn't try for that long before we were successful, but even still, we were getting a bit frustrated and stressed about it because, you know, it was something that we really, really wanted. Um, so, yeah, to find out, like, yeah, that was unreal. Like, I, I actually, I think I messaged Chrissy, like, we, we uh, message each other now from different rooms in the house because we're, like, <laughs> quite far apart. But I reckon I messaged her, like, in the next three days, probably a hundred times saying that I, like, still can't believe it. And like, I haven't been able to go to any of the scans yet because of COVID. Um, but yeah, just seeing all the little videos of the baby and stuff like that, it's unreal. So my big personal news for this year has been that I've been watching a lot of television. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and more seriously, one show that I've really enjoyed is Sex Education. Have you watched it? Yeah, we're, we've just finished season three. Did you okay. watch season three yet? Yeah, I watched season so three. Good. It's a, it's fantastic. But one of the reasons I brought it up is because of you know all that all those sort of confused feelings that you were talking about 
with pregnancy and so on and there's so much of that in like almost anything pertaining to sex and i find that show it's quite funny but it's also so heartwarming like all of not all of the characters are nice but like to be honest all of the characters you kind of want the best for and seeing them navigating those difficult circumstances is like is i don't know it's heartwarming is the best word for it i really enjoyed it yeah it really does like capture human emotion quite well from a standpoint of like happiness and then like frustration and sadness and like heartbreak and this and that like really good show yeah high recommend high highly recommend so we'll tell the people what you've been up to with regards to your mentorship yeah i was gonna say so let's skip over my personal life um (laughs) entirely so yeah probably to be honest the biggest news for me um certainly from a business sense this year was launching the first intake of my mentorship um that's something that I had probably spent somewhere between five and eight hours a week on for about a year to prepare for. Um, so it was very gratifying to see, one, how much interest there was in doing it and two, how well received it was. Um, so it was 12-week mentorship with with one to two lectures a week. So we're talking three to four hours of content per week and a live Zoom call. Um, I had 31 coaches go through the first intake. There was actually meant to be 30 but I had to manually turn off signups. And when I announced that there was two spots left, three people signed up while I was at the shop. So we had 31, um, <laughs> which, which is fine. Um, and yeah, it was, it was very rewarding. And there's actually, a lot, um, there's actually a lot of insights that I took from that that I think are going to help me both as hopefully a mentor to more coaches in the future because I'm going to do another intake early next year, but also as a coach myself and in kind of how I think about coaching more broadly. So so that was very exciting and obviously very gratifying when like if you work on something particularly like that where there's no immediate gratification involved like the first literally 11 months of writing it just sucked um because it's hard work and nobody's saying thanks or paying you for it to go from that to something that is obviously in some instances very career changing for people who do it is you know quite a big deal did you did you have any thoughts about like limiting the first intake to less people so you didn't have as much workload like how did you manage doing 31 coaches that seems like a lot seems like quite a lot yeah so i actually did limit it to 30 plus one um um i limited it to 30 so i i had two streams in the mentorship there was the general admission and one of the reasons why i had all of the content pre-recorded and so on is because people are able to navigate that at their own pace but then we have a group catch-up in which people can submit questions and we have discussions and we were doing form checks and discussing programming and so on as a group so having it structured that way meant that i could have a decent number of people in to be honest there's no real reason why i couldn't have 60 or 100 people doing it in that format but i think the smaller number is better for discussions and what we normally had in the live calls was you know somewhere between 10 and 20 people showing up meaning that we had pretty lively discussions for the most part about everything so i think there is a sweet spot of below 30 when everybody gets to have a voice and be involved but if you have all the content out there then realistically lots of people can go through and just choose to engage on their own level is this is this something that you want to keep like keep the pre-recorded and not do a catch-up type version and anyone can do it at any point no no no. so so i still do think the live calls are really important because I would ask people to submit questions about the content for that week 
so that I could give them answers, but also so that other coaches could discuss it and stuff. So I think it's very important to have live catch-ups and things, but you can have the bulk of the content served like that. Um, And I think that that works very well. The alternative where I would present all of the content each week live both limits the total amount of content that you can present because there's no way most people could attend five hours of Zoom calls, say, let alone do so on schedule. Mm. Um, Limits the number of, limits like the amount of content you can present, but also limits your ability to have those deeper discussions. And so what I would rather do is present people the information, perhaps, and this is something I'm going to look at in future, build in a few more resources for self-assessment, so quizzes, and scenarios and so on for people to go take that content put it in action and then have discussions um, and this sort of leads me to big insight one um, about coaches from it which is that everybody so there's this theory of learning this is just abrupt segue there's a theory of learning um, called constructivism and the idea is that sort of every bit of knowledge that you gather is built on top of pre-existing knowledge or concepts that you have bit like building a house out of lego right and so what that means is knowledge is more easily retained when you can relate it to things you already know but also that your your prior conceptions or misconceptions shape how you interpret and what you do with future information and from a coaching perspective um i actually think that's one of the greatest assets of coaches because everybody comes in with a wealth of experience, but that wealth of experience comes from different places. And most people who come into coaching are also interested in or engaged in different fields and stuff as well. They're going to, sh- they're going to sort of shape their insights about, you know, what it means to train with effort or how you teach people or how you communicate certain concepts or how it's most easy to learn stuff and so on. And bringing this all the way back to the discussions, what I think is very interesting and also very helpful is if I give people some generalized conceptual information so you know this is a basic theory of motor learning or whatever if i then get five coaches in a call and say you know given this basic conceptual knowledge how might you go about applying it or discussing it with your clients or where have you seen that to be true they're all going to come at it from very different angles um, and they're all going to have different insights that might be more or less effective with different populations and so on um And so I guess bringing all of that back, it really enriches everyone's learning to hear how different people interpret different information because it, again, exposes them to perspectives that they otherwise wouldn't have. So I think that the discussions, even discussions among people who might think that they are much less knowledgeable than me on a topic, actually give a whole lot more insight for that reason. And there's a couple of other reasons why I think discussions are important. Another general adult learning principle is that people's self-efficacy um, is improved and their retention of knowledge is improved when they are asked to assume the role of the teacher far more because it reinforces to them that they are knowledgeable but also forces them to re-express ideas. And you can't really re-express ideas unless you're just verbatim saying what somebody else said without some level of processing. So it forces processing on people, um, which I think is really good. And that also forces you to confront and resolve ambiguity on the way. So if I teach you something and I say, can you say this back to me in your own terms and you get to a stumbling block, that stumbling block's the part that you don't quite understand. And so there's that. And then the other thing is being able to spot errors in other people um, or to see how people who you perceive as closer to your peers deal with a problem or with information also gives you chances to sort of have a dry run at problem, um, problem solution 
I guess problem solution is the most redundant language. At solving a problem. Problem solving. Problem solving, exactly. So it's the same as when you teach five people how to squat, right? And they all get to watch each other and they're all brand new. After not long, the beginners start seeing the mistakes the other beginners are making and they actually learn faster from that. We've got research demonstrating that in motor learning. But the same thing's basically true with conceptual knowledge is you give people a chance to sort of see a whole lot more people attempting to process the same thing. So I very highly value those free-form discussions, which means that I therefore have to present the bulk of the content separately and allow people to digest it in their own time. So provided that that's done well and gives them chances to chew through it, I think that that's probably the most valuable way to go. But above and beyond those 31 people who were just going through the curriculum that way, I did have a further four coaches who did additional one-to-one work with me where we did sit down every fortnight for an hour and go through additional assignments that they had, talk specifically about their businesses or their coaching practices and what it is that they're wanting to achieve or change. And in that instance, we were able to go into a lot more depth. I couldn't handle doing that with more than probably six or eight people at most per intake, but by having the course sort of have those two tiers, it also lets people engage on the level that they want to. And that's that's what I've tended to find really good about this current one. And did you feel like the the coaches who undertook the one-on-ones with you got a little bit more out of the program? Um, were you to hear them say it? Yes. So I presume so. Like, can you, I'm sure you'd be able to notice as well, like from maybe the improvement in their knowledge or the way that they apply things over the course of the course over the course of the course yeah um that there would have been maybe a bigger improvement from them yeah of course and but i also think it's like this is not false modesty i absolutely think that they got a lot more value out of it but also the people who are inclined to do that one-to-one style of engagement are also the people who are highly engaged generally so i think if you were to break the cohort into the people who were low engagement just doing the general intake they're going to get much less out of it than the next tier of people who are very high engagement but don't do the one-to-one course. And then the people who do the one-to-one course were always going to be highly engaged and get as much as possible out of the other content because they clearly care enough to ask to voluntarily do more. But the one-to-one engagement on top of that gives them more and more chances to discuss things and to have things more explicitly tailored to them. And those discussions also really highlighted to me how people with sort of different backgrounds can take very similar information and sort of extrapolated in very very broadly different ways and so that was quite enriching to me as well um, and, and did really you and it. did you find that they ended up kind of in a similar finishing period based on sorry not period finishing point based off of like their experience and everything they saw things from different viewpoints from their experiences and from you know the upbringing or the people that they've worked with or whatever do you find that they came to the same conclusions No, Um, and I'm actually glad that they didn't because at the very start of the mentorship, there was a video that I don't think anybody watched just saying like, why are we here? (laughs) Um, And one of the big things I said is I don't really want to make 30 or 31 more me's. What I want is for everybody to be able to take what I'm giving them and apply it to their own things much more. And so for instance, in in my one-to-ones, there was there was two women, one of whom works with a lot of sort of general population clients who are interested in strength training in a petition, participational sense, but not highly competitively driven and not highly engaged with training and not very metric focused and so on. And so we spoke quite a lot about her coaching systems and how she can give herself good decision-making tools 
with very little onus on the athlete and how she can go about you know teaching people motor skills without requiring them to necessarily be fixated on stuff so that's a very very different stream of discussions to another woman that i worked with who works with a lot of highly competitive athletes who are really interested in powerlifting and who want who wants to have sort of much more metric focused programming tools and things right yeah so so you end up with you end up with very very sort of different outcomes um but outcomes that i think that i was able to enrich in my discussions with them anyway yeah and an interesting thing that comes from that and this is probably a good point of discussion for us to leap off on generally is that something that i realized um was that people sort of tend to fixate on the deficits in in their knowledge or their perceived knowledge around coaching um, and sort of aim to rectify them without necessarily considering or aiming to maximize their strengths or sort of their unifying values. And so, again, using those couple of examples, you know, the first, the first lady was really focused on developing better sort of metric-based systems for coaching but hadn't fully maximized her ability to empathize and communicate and bring people along on the journey with her and all the things that I think had initially attracted clients to her. And so we ended up talking quite a lot about that. Whereas the second lady already had probably sufficiently good systems in that regard, but could maybe think a little bit more about some of the subtleties of programming and execution to get a little bit more out of her clients um, and so on. So I think... I think when we hold ourselves up against what we perceive as like an industry standard or like an all-knowing entity um, for coaching, sometimes we actually miss some of the things that make us valuable as individuals. Yeah, and we've had this discussion before um, with regards to like doubling down on what got you to where you are in the first place. And like, you know, a lot of, like exactly like you said, a lot of coaches attract people because of maybe their personality or the way that you know they are as a lifter or you know mostly personality stuff and the way that they apply information or give you information and then they seem to like move away from that to try and pick up pieces that they're missing and then they end up missing like most of the target audience in the first place yeah it's you know that i hate this phrase but it's actually a great one is your vibe is your tribe that sucks. You haven't, too, though. <laughs> I haven't heard that. It's, I it's, have heard it and I hate it okay, and I well, never want to hear it again. It's basically live, laugh, love, but better. Um, <laughs> but it's you got a poster up in your wall, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I've got it. I've got it on my bed sheets as well. <laughs> um, that might be why I'm not married. You know that Conor McGregor suit where he's got the pinstripes and it says "fuck you" down the pinstripes. I had forgotten about that. Do you have brilliant. a suit that says "your vibe is your tribe" down the pinstripes? Yeah, absolutely. I wore it to your wedding. Um, <laughs> but no, your vibe is your tribe. So why is that important? Exactly what you said. People are attracted to you on the basis of their perception of you, on the way in which you communicate and all of that. And effectively structured coaching systems aren't just structured so that they can deliver like the most you know pointy end scientific training and so on to people. They're also structured in a way where every interaction with you and your business is a manifestation of your value system. And one of the reasons why I think being cognizant of what it is that attracts people to you, what it is that you're good at, but also what it is that you truly value in a coaching service is it gives you a point of difference. Um, And that point of difference is ultimately, like I said, what attracts people to you. So, so I think, I think 
on reflection, particularly talking with these individuals who did the one-to-one with me, kind of asking, you know, why is it that people come and train with you? Like, what is it that you offer that is different? And what is it that you think is most important about training? Because there's lots of ways to skin a cat. But asking those questions of yourself and then saying, okay, these are the things that I most deeply value about what I provide and here are the ways in which I'm going to tailor my services to giving people that experience over and over and over again can only attract to you more clients probably, but also people who deeply resonate with you and therefore value what you do and people who deeply resonate with you and value what you do will engage more with your services and probably pay you more for it and speak more highly of you in the long run. And last longer. And Yeah, and last longer. And, you know, no, like client turnover is really annoying. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's a part of your job. It's natural. But you don't want to lose clients. What you Like the most ideal thing is you form deep relationships with people. Wow. I haven't done a podcast in a year. I can barely I talk. was actually getting really nervous before this. <laughs> it's, well... I've gotten very used to just talking to a blank screen because that's essentially my job when I'm not doing this. Um, but articulating thoughts as they come to me has gotten harder. For I sure. think it's mostly just me having to look at your moustache. Yeah. It's kind of putting me off. Yeah, it's a shame that this isn't a vodcast because the, mo- the mo's hot. Um, what was I saying? Yeah, you want to form deep relationships with people and help them in the long term and... And sort of, yeah, feel that engagement grow and your understanding of them grow over time. So when you have people who are like in for a couple of months, out for a couple of months and so on, kind of sucks. It's not very good fun. But again, the best way to prevent that is to have a business that really sort of manifests your value system. But if you have people that come and go in a couple of months, they don't actually get the true value of your service because the value of your service as a coach should be, like you said, building relationships, getting to know someone, how they tick, what kind of training that they enjoy what kind of training that helps them improve how they tick mentally blah 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 blah. and if you don't last long enough with someone you're not actually going to get to know them well enough to give them the service that you're capable of giving them yeah exactly that um i wanted to go back to something you said earlier about you know not wanting to make 31 will berkman's and i think this is something that for all the coaches listening out there that is really really prevalent in our industry is people doing these courses you know six week mentorship or two week mentorship or you know learning a course about a new system or whatever and then forgetting about what got them to where they are in the first place and how the information that they've just learned actually applies to their system as opposed to just completely doing a 180 and now being you know a coach who only applies that system yeah um and Something I, I speak about, I actually haven't gone off on this rant on this podcast, but probably the biggest thing that pisses me off in the fitness industry, but also one of the things that I think is most important for long-term success preach, is, preach. is authenticity or lack thereof pisses me off. If I read your content, it should sound to me like something that you would say, and it should sound to me like you are having a discussion with your target audience. So if you read my Instagram posts, some of them are targeted to athletes and they mirror the language that I use with athletes, but they also express my thoughts as I have them. I don't try and, I don't try and change what I'm saying or what I think. Um, and I certainly don't express ideas that I don't, I don't sort of particularly resonate with or particularly understand. And then in my discussions with coaches, I again convey my thoughts and my attitudes and I use the same language that I would with them and so on. And so it's very clear sort of who I'm communicating with, how and why, and that I do deeply believe and think about the things that I say. Mm. And when I read coaches who have sort of 
jumped on a given bandwagon, whatever the bandwagon is, and are expressing ideas that you can tell that they don't fully understand or using language that I just know isn't natural to them in an attempt to sound smart or to echo the people that they hold in high regard. I think it does them a huge disservice. And because I immediately smell bullshit, I presume that a large number of clients or potential clients who read that also smell bullshit. Whereas when you convey just what is sort of authentically true for yourself, even if it's as simple as like, I love training. It's so sick to get under a barbell. How cool is being strong? Like that's not a very academic thought. But if that's truly how you think and feel and you express that in an enthusiastic and authentic way, the people who, going back to your vibe is your tribe, the people who are like, fuck yeah, that's something I aspire to. Like I get this guy. They will come flocking to you. And so you don't have to assume the postures of other people to actually be a really effective communicator and coach. And and yeah, the, the your vibe is your tribe thing actually is, it makes so much sense in that regard. Like you should be attracting people who are actually, who actually think quite similarly to you because those are the people who resonate with your content. Yeah, I mean, you've probably had clients where it always feels like you're talking sort of obliquely to each other. You give them an instruction, they come back with a question where you're like, I don't think we're even thinking or talking about the same things. Yeah. And in some part, like when that happens to me frequently with a client as a coach, I have to go, okay, there is some fault of mine here because I obviously haven't brought them on board and gotten them to my way of thinking. How can I do that better? But some other part of it is just like, well, maybe this person is just wanting something that I don't provide, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, second big insight from the mentorship. This is going to go on forever. Oh, well, sorry, mate. Did you come with lots of notes prepared? I have a few notes. Oh, wow. Well done. We've <laughs> um, had a year to rock. First so time. I hope so. um, no, you'll like this as well. Second big insight. You can come at things from very different backgrounds or very different sort of perspectives and end up with quite similar conclusions about what to do in practice. Well, this is the question that I asked you earlier. What's that? Do Does people's experience and where they come from, their backgrounds give you the same finishing point well perhaps i misinterpreted your question so when you when you asked me that i thought what that meant was like at the end of my discussions with these one-to-ones they'd come out with a training model that looks the same absolutely not but in say my group calls we would get a video of somebody doing a squat and they would be falling forwards as they approach the hole really unstable poor bracing whatever and you would have somebody talk about expansion compression Somebody talk about, you know, quads and glutes and shit. Somebody talk about bracing, blah, 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 blah. And ultimately we'd say, okay, well, like all of those are potential interpretations of the situation. What are we actually going to do about it and how will we know if we're having success? And they'd all be like, oh, we'd probably do some tempo squats and then progress to paused ones. And you're like, okay, so we've got all of these paradigms all potentially very useful in their own ways, all give you specific insights, whatever, but ultimately we're coming to quite similar things in practice. And again, I think that that gets lost a little bit where people focus so much on the differentiation aspect and trying to sort of out academic people that they forget that you can come to quite similar places and, and sort of reconcile your ideas different ways. And I think that was an important thing to show people too. Yeah. And if you like delve deep into a new system and you have all of this, you know, regurgitated knowledge, like rote learning that you can just off the cuff, write down or speak but you don't know how to actually apply it then you're missing you shouldn't actually have that knowledge like there's no purpose for it yeah I mean I agree with that 
but I guess in application of that knowledge, understanding that perspectives are just perspectives. So, I mean, some things are empirically true, but in the case of just paradigms through which you, say, assess movement, some of them might be truer or more useful than others, and some might be context-dependent. But if you're coming to ultimately the same conclusions, then you also don't need to necessarily denigrate another person's way of thinking because you've obviously you obviously agree on more than you disagree on in practice. Yeah, if you if your conclusion is this client needs to do tempo squats, it it doesn't really matter how you got there. I guess that's the point. Yeah, I I think that that's true. I mean, it only matters how you got there in as far as you can that. continue getting there. Yeah, exactly. That thought process is going to expand over time. Okay, final insight. This one's kind of short, but it's very, very important. Goes back to coaching systems, value systems, and what you're actually trying to achieve. Everything you do needs to have a purpose, and you should be able to clearly articulate it. So we talk about that in programming, right? We say, like, what role does this exercise slot play in your program? Because that's going to tell you how you ought to do it best. And it's also going to help you think about your program more holistically when you go to make changes. Well, on the same note, every coaching interaction that you have or element of your service should have a purpose too. Um, And that purpose should be related to that core mission. So like in business, you talk about mission statements. Your coaching kind of needs a mission statement too. Like what is it that people are finding valuable about you and how does this element of your service aid with that? And again, something that came out particularly in my one-to-one discussions with certain coaches is there would be sort of like bits that were like almost hanging off their coaching service where it's like, oh, I asked my clients to do this thing. And you go, oh, what do you do with that? And they say, nothing. And I go like, how good's the engagement with that element of your service? And they go, people don't really do it. And you go, well, if people aren't even doing it and you're not getting much use of it and it doesn't really sort of give them, give them that tingly sense of like, oh, when I do this, I'm getting something that I value back from my coach. Maybe it's not really helping. And again, I think the more sort of elegant your systems are, and the more you give people the experience that you are trying to convey with their every interaction with you, the more valuable you feel. So you kind of want everything to be like all killer, no filler. If somebody does something for you, it should help. And same thing with your program. You should be able to clearly articulate what are you trying to achieve all the time. And if you can't do that with either element of your service, that's something you could probably improve. 100%. And it could honestly also save you time if you're and the client time. If they're doing stuff that, you know, maybe they're, they're not really sure why they're doing it and you're not really sure why they're doing it. They're not maybe maybe not getting enough out of it or a lot out of it. You're not actually probably not going to get the information that you want and therefore you're probably not going to be able to make the decisions that you need to make. Yeah, I mean, when certain people are opting out of something very frequently, they're obviously not feeling value in doing it, right? So maybe maybe it's an explanation of, you know, being better with communicating why they're doing what they're doing or maybe it just doesn't need to be in there in the first place. Yeah, well, I always say when I am talking to clients, when I'm doing a check-in or when I'm sending them a program or something, I like to use reflective language. So the words they use and the explanations they give me and the goals they state, I want to say back to them because it gives them a sense that if you do what I am telling you, then you will get what you have told me you want. I think that that's important. But then I also think it's important in the other sense where when they do a behavior that I want to reinforce, I can also say, you know, because of what you told me in your check-in this week and the metrics that I got from you filling in your program, I believe X. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, when I do check-ins and fill in metrics, this person can then give me back the things that I value. So it's important that, again, all of your interactions are are like clear and valuable and related to each other. And valuable to both parties too. Yeah. I, I need to take a break, dude. I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs>
totally all right. No, 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 no. Wiggly weights. Okay, Alex. By the way, how shit is the transition music on these days? Yeah, we're, we're really, we've really dropped the ball. We haven't done an episode in nine months, and now we're just not even... No instruments, nothing. No. Well, I mean, I'm a little bit... I have no excuse for being out of practice with guitar, but my motivation to play guitar has been much lower. Um, probably just because, like, I can't play with the band right now or anything. Um, and we actually had... We had, like, a lot of gigs lined up that have been just coveted to shit so yeah, it's been a bit annoying that's shitty do you have weddings coming up and stuff uh we did slash do but a lot of them have been rescheduled and then the ones that are going ahead we don't know what the restrictions will be like at this point so it's a bit it's all up in the air this really is a wish episode of weekly weights isn't it yeah <laughs> all righty alex you had you had notes yeah just a couple more things that's that have been going on in my life um so i'll be transitioning into more of a coaching role at city strength in the coming coming six months or so um the gym is looking to expand um and i've been wanting to do more in-person coaching particularly in groups and that's something that i've missed a lot since um since lift closed really um and yeah I, i just find that to be like where i shine as a as a coach in a in a group setting um you know as a kind of leader of leader of a group type of thing so yeah. that that's something that um i'm looking forward to in the next few months hopefully the gym can find um a space to move into um i don't know if you've been there recently but like their store has done so well in the last year or so that like you can't you can barely navigate your way through the gym because there's boxes everywhere like they've completely out of storeroom and they've even added shelves upstairs and in the um, kitchen area. To be clear, this is an online store. Yes. Yeah. So weekly weights ten at checkout at citystrength.com.au. <laughs> it doesn't get you anything off. It's just going to say the discount code failed. But if enough people do it, they might bring. I might be off. able to bully um John into it. Yeah. Um, I've got a call with him today, so. Oh, cool. I'll, I'll, I'll chat. With you. Um, okay. Yeah. So hopefully the they're able to find a new space to expand the store and expand the gym and then that's kind of i'll be kind of moving into that role which is exciting um you got a comp as well i do i well pa went up in flames in august we'll talk about that another time yeah we'll talk about that on a future episode um i won't give any spoilers yeah we're surprised yeah go on um yeah so i've joined apu and um, I'll be competing in December at um, Hunter Performance, which is Aiden Potts' gym. Um, and my first comp in 93-kilo class. Yep. You're looking girthy right now. Swole? Yeah. Or chubby? No, I mean, swabby. swabby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we both said at the same time. Nice. Um, and the other, thing, the other thing is I'm working on a free program for powerlifters returning to training after lockdown. Okay. And this will be something that I'll just keep um, in my link tree. Um, and you can use it anytime if you take any time off training. So it, it's um, a combination of percentage and RPE stuff with the primary goal of just reintroducing you to the lifts. Um, there's, you know, some top end strengthy type work, not really top end. And then there's some, you know, percentage back offs and some. Um, Tempo work in there for skill acquisition plus accessories. Cool. So it's four weeks, and um, as the program builds out, there's a slight increase in frequency and um, volume. Cool. Um, well, on my note for new business ventures, 
one thing is that I'm working on more educational content. So I'll be doing another intake of the mentorship early next year. Um, but I'm working on some more educational stuff to follow that and also some reworking of my online coaching systems. So that's exciting. And the other thing that I've been thinking of launching that I'm going to record a couple of episodes of in the next day is, um, or in the next couple of days, is a separate podcast to this one that I'm calling the Will Berkman Variety Podcast because, <laughs> because like, you know how podcasts are, like, very indulgent? Yeah, dude, it's all about what you want to talk about and... Well, imagine if it's what I wanted to talk about, but I don't even know anything about it. <laughs> it's more indulgent. You don't even know what you want to talk about yet. No, well, like, as in, if I can get a paleontologist on, I want to talk about dinosaurs. Like, we're going, <laughs> we're doing just anything that interests me. Um, so that's very much going to be a passion project. But I just figured that, like, while, while I can, why not? So that that's going to happen. People might hate it. I don't know, but like, but we're starting that. Um, so that's like the very non-core thing. And then the core thing is expanded, um, expanded educational offerings, reworking my online stuff. So Sweet. yeah, it should be fun. So we wanted to kind of move into some of the changes that we've made or maybe not changes we've made, but different ways that we approach our own coaching systems. So you had a few notes um, down there, Will. What was one of the things that you've kind of, you know, moved towards over the last, you know, since we last did an episode, nine months. Nine months. Um, I think I need to express this in quite vague terms because I don't think I've had any, like, outright epiphanies. Yeah, and I feel exactly the same. But for me, it's been like... It's been like taking a zoomed-out approach and looking back at what I was doing, like, three or four years ago and comparing that to where I am now and kind of, you know, just gaining the understanding of what the differences are. Yeah, I, I would say that that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. So there's two, there's like twin streams of, there's twin streams of things that I'm thinking about in terms of like exercise selection and basic prescription that I think are important. So one is a bit more renewed and deeper thinking about how constraints and, and body positions and postures and so on influence movement and also how we can influence body positions and postures and joint range of motion and stuff by using movement constraints so I know it's very much in vogue right now, um, in, or at least in Australian powerlifting, to think about like where your center of mass is and your stack and what your rib cage is doing and relationships between the rib cage and the scapula and all that stuff. I actually think it's very, very useful, and particularly when I look at some of my clients who are not very effective movers and or for whom all of their movements regress to looking very much the same, which actually limits your training tolerance. Because if all of your movements look exactly the same and you're loading the same tissues in the same positions all the time, you're going to endure less total training than somebody who can express some variability. So, so I've thought a lot more about how can I manipulate my exercise prescription to help give people more movement options and more movement tools. But at the same time, I've kind of had to temper some of that thinking with the fact that powerlifting is actually really simple and you kind of just have to be in given positions all the time and the best way to get resilient to those positions is loading them with a reasonable amount of effort and you probably don't need to preserve a huge amount of variability in somebody who only has to do like three things basically all the same Mm. and so i've been trying to find a better balance between sufficient exposure to variability to make people more competent and feel better and sufficiently driving effort because effort's the most important thing and I think 
this is why I'm sort of cagey in how I think about this because I'm still sort of teasing it out. But I think for my people who are actually just more competent movers broadly and who are good at powerlifting already, then it's more about effort with just enough variability to keep them healthy. And for the people who are not very competent powerlifters and kind of suck at moving or don't tolerate much training, often it's a little bit more about exposing them to more motor challenges and then driving effort in a wide variety of things before sort of tapering to a peak. Because if you think it's a little bit like Chad Wesley Smith's sort of pyramid of specificity thing, when you're less developed or just less competent of an athlete, general skills are more transferable, but also these people have not learnt to actually express lots of different movements for whatever reasons. They need to be able to do that before they can progress to the next level. But once you're good at things and you're resilient to training, then you actually just need to train really hard. So I've been kind of thinking a lot more about that stuff. Mm. You know? Cool. It's really interesting. Nothing to add. You're just like, that's interesting. No, nothing to add. I I honestly completely agree um, with all that stuff. And and that kind of leads me to to my first point, which was... um, just holistically taking a more middle ground approach to basically everything that I do in my coaching and middle ground approaches are for fucking cowards <laughs> I need to say that now well like if, if if I look back on kind of where powerlifting was when you know we were coming up as coaches it was very much like block specific and all blocks were very different um, and you know like you end up spending not a whole lot of time doing the middle ground stuff that actually improves you as a lifter and you know you go from doing five sets of 10 to like you know 12 weeks later you're doing two sets of two and you've just gone from one end of the spectrum to the other and you've only really passed through that middle ground for maybe only a few weeks and you know this this applies to anything in powerlifting not just not just training and not just like volume prescription or whatever but also intensity well like that's the biggest reason for you know, wanting to stay in that middle ground of volume is because it allows you to stay in that middle ground of intensity as well. Like those two things obviously have a very strong relationship, um, inverse relationship. Um, but it also applies to like, to nutrition. It also applies to like your body weight and all those kind of things. And I think like the longer that I, the longer that I coach people, the the more similar their training is the whole year. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, like I've definitely said this on earlier episodes um, as well, which makes me cringe a little bit. I used to be like very much in the school of defined phases and like making the goal the goal, which like I still think is a good idea broadly. Yeah, but to such a degree that I was like, strength maintenance work during a hypertrophy block is bad because therefore you can't do as much hypertrophy mm. and the hypertrophy will interfere with the strength anyway. And likewise, in strength-focused blocks, maintaining any degree of volume is just going to suppress strength expression and therefore it's a waste of your time. And like, why do two things badly when you can do one thing well? And kind of what I've realized over time is that that's a false dichotomy and that you can, you can and you should be looking to find a middle ground approach more often than not I still think that there are times when you want to occupy either end of the spectrum Mm. but that's fine you choose those times but I think middle ground approaches are on the whole better and the other thing that kind of relates to my thinking on that is that more and more I've come to realize how much individuals differ in their response to training and so the presumption that 
there is this sort of very concrete connection with the way in which you load people mechanically and the types of adaptations you see from them. And therefore that you can change a huge amount about training parameters and expect like very predictable changes in the type of response you get from athletes. I think that that's wrong too. And so when you find a middle ground approach that is broadly effective, no matter what the training parameters look like, you probably want to spend a lot of time there because you've happened onto something good. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And and I I echo what, what you were saying there with regards to, you know, following specific block block focused training like you know hypertrophy block. We don't do any comp lifts and we do tens on everything, and it's all basically secondary and assistance work. Whereas now, like the way that I see those different blocks the variables change to a degree but we're more just turning up and down the dials very slightly to kind of gear things towards the direction that we want that block to take but the differences are like quite small and like you know in that volumey quote-unquote volume hypertrophy block your top sets might be sets of six sorry your back off sets might be sets of six for your main lifts but in the peaky block it might be four so like that's only a two rep difference whereas in previous iterations of my coaching system would be tens on high bar and then low bar doubles and it's like so different that we haven't really like i said before haven't really come through that middle ground yeah um and it's funny it's funny because probably the same people who are like extremely stuck on very very fixed blocks and stuff are the same people who would laugh at somebody being like you know fives are for strength and tens are for growth and so on like in another context but that's kind of how you're acting and again it just doesn't seem that a lot of the differences that you get at a population level in adaptation are that great between doing threes and fives or fives and eights in lots of respects and Mm. it doesn't seem that the difference between an rpe6 and an rpe8 is that great either so like what are you really tinkering with that's sort of the broad amount of training stress and the broad direction of that training stress and the nature of it a little bit but like really you're working like also programs are really homogenous like you know if you're doing fives on your squats and tens or twelves on your leg extensions like your quads don't treat them necessarily as completely different exercises like you're getting you're getting a mix of signals always so you need that mix of signals to have an appropriate directional quality and an appropriate amount to them and then just go yeah and and there's a couple more considerations to this is like you know if you think about if you think about strength and hypertrophy as completely separate ideas you're missing a lot of the point because they overlap so much that we we can always include quote-unquote strength work and always include quote-unquote hypertrophy work it's just a matter of you know the organization of the program and you know how much of the one or the other we actually put in there yeah Um, the other thing with regards to it kind of relates to the middle ground approach was um, a lot of people during a comp prep, like they turn up the dial on specificity so much that they actually lose sight of the assistance or the secondary stuff that got them to where they are in the first place. And that's something that I've really changed my beliefs on in the last 12 months or so in that that work that you were doing to get to the point where you were, you know, four, six weeks out from comp should probably remain quite similar for those last, you know, few weeks of the prep. So I think that that's Ed Cohen has a reasonably famous quote that is kind of similar to that, um, where he says, you know, if if this was the stuff that got me strong, why would I drop it when I'm trying to be my strongest? Mm. Um, and I kind of believe that, but I think I would add a little bit of color to those thoughts 
which is when we spoke about sort of how different athletes might need different amounts of variability in their training. Um, I suspect that for my athletes who are, who are like the high motor competency ones who don't really need as much exposure to variability, like their accessory work is, you know, it's there, it's present, but like it's not overwhelmingly different of a stimulus to like the competition stuff. They're doing competition stuff. They have some backfill with accessory work. Whereas with those athletes who it's like you're doing a lot more broad motor competency stuff and trying to keep them healthy and stuff, I suspect that they need a little bit more tapering towards specific stuff because otherwise they'd be doing lots of everything in the lead up to comp. So those people I might pull back a bit more accessory work and drive a bit more specificity just to sort of get very short-term improvements in movement competency, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, I think a lot of those those latter people that you spoke about are like more on the beginner end. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're either more on the beginner end or they're athletes with a long training history who are just not good movers. Right. And I, I think like for the ones who are beginners, there's not really a need to specify so early. And I think like, you know, you may perform 5% or 2 to 5% worse in the meet, but you're improving your general base by that 2 to 4%, 2% which is going to make you better in the long run as opposed to just better for this one meet. So I guess like weighing up the, is it worth taking away these general qualities for six weeks to get a slightly better comp result or is it probably a better option to keep the general qualities in, build the general athlete for five years down the track? Sure, but I mean, just to be clear, I'm not saying you go hyper-specific for six weeks. I'm saying in the last two or three weeks, yeah. say you might be like, okay, we probably don't need to be doing, you know, goblet hold, front foot elevated split squats right now we because don't to, we don't need to be doing those at any point, at any <laughs> point of the year. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean. It's like, yeah, at that stage, they'll probably get a little bit more out of just like either resting a bit or doing something just a tiny bit more specific and turning the dial. But I'm not saying like, okay, cool, like you're a beginner, you suck at moving. 12 weeks 10 singles SBD only you know like that's yeah. not happening yeah and, and again this comes back to to understanding your lifter who they are where they come from what their goals are what their competition history is where they actually want to head and all those things and like you know it's easy for us to sit here and say oh this is best this is best when in reality the best thing for the individual is probably only best for them and probably not best for the their best mate or their mum or their dad or whatever yeah but again, when we think about just going back to the general athlete thing, by the way, people make the same error in the opposite direction all the time. They get somebody where it's like, oh, this person like always shoves their weight way too far forward on their toes. Like they got a comp in three weeks. We better fix that shoving their weight too far forward thing. Like let's only do safety bar squats and, you know, something else so that they learn to keep their weight back. And it's like, bro, they're not going to be better in three weeks for mm -hmm. that. Like, you know, they probably just need to get better at squatting right now. And then like, it's a long-term thing of let's expose them and strengthen, strengthen them in that position too, yeah. you know? Yeah. hundred percent. Um, what was the next thing you had? Um, I can't, I mean, I kind of said the main things with training, but related to that sort of more broad, like driving just the right amount of effort thing is thinking about volume a little bit more holistically. Um, Steve Denovi made a, made a post or had a video which I think really helped me reconcile some of my observations about how different athletes tolerate different amounts of volume, but also thrive working in different rep ranges. And the crux of it is that you just need to think about, you know, the distance traveled or the total amount of work and how, like what, 
percentage, say, or what portion of a muscle's range of motion is being taxed in a given lift when we start thinking about volume tolerance and just how much training people can undergo. Um, and when you also start thinking in those terms, you can also start thinking about, well, like for each set of quad work that I'm doing, how concentrated is that stress versus how varied it is. So if you have an athlete, again, going back to the to the people who need more or less variability thing, if you have an athlete where all of their quad work is, you know, similar force vectors of similar muscle lengths, that's actually a qualitatively quite different stress to somebody where they have some short length quad work, some long length quad work, you know, some stuff with lots of eccentric loading, some with less eccentric loading and things like that too. So when I think about volume, I'm probably moving not entirely away from metrics because I think crudely counting sets is good, but just making sure that I layer in some of those more qualitative or contextual factors when I think about it so that I can say how much effort do I want to drive and where. 100%. And like, you know, a good example of that is someone who maybe has a really wide stance squat who is quite bent over. They squat in flat shoes, wide stance. They're not actually moving their knees very far. So they, they're probably going to be someone who needs like, you know, a safety bar or a high bar squat on their secondary day to drive more of that, drive more of that. Whereas someone who maybe like myself who squats my low bars quite upright, like I probably don't need a whole lot of that. Yeah, and you know, I even have a lifter right now who's just started with me. Very good lifter, super strong. And his quads are fucking massive. Like, they literally just hang over his patella. It's bonkers. Um, And in his first program, I gave him pretty much a normal amount of quad accessory work, which is like one or two unilateral slots and maybe like eight leg extension somewhere on top of six or eight sets of squats. So he's probably doing like 14 sets of quads a week, Um, which for a powerlifter is not an extraordinary amount, particularly because some of your squats aren't that hard. He was dying and he was like, like couldn't handle it my quads are so sore blah 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 blah. pull back to doing basically nothing he's doing just fine um because his squats are really upright knees shove really far forward very little hip travel all this stuff and he looks pretty much the opposite of me squatting and that probably describes some part of that difference i'm sure there's other things too but like biomechanically you really see the difference you know mm. yeah and previously i'd have been like what the fuck like this guy's work capacity sucks like soldier on yeah yeah <laughs> you know so there you go yeah cool um my next one was just going away from the idea of like block length um and this is something that like emerging strategies has kind of revolutionized and revolutionized and changed um in powerlifting is it finds out how long someone can sustain a level of training for. And then once their performance starts to decrease, they, you know, wash out and go again. And that's kind of their, you know, they call it time to peak or, you know, that's essentially the length of the block. And then something that I've been doing um, a lot recently is instead of writing like a four or six week block, I've actually been delivering my training weekly with weekly updates. Um, And that allows me to be more variable on a, person-to-person basis with regards to how long this block continues for um, and things like that. And I think that's been something that's really changed the results for my clients. It's made things a lot more predictable and um, yeah. So I've I've actually got really complicated thoughts on this. So I'll give very simple ones. One is I'm very much doing the same thing in lots of ways, but what I'm tending to do is write a few weeks of training at the start of each block because like I can normally say you're going to get at least three or four weeks out of this if I'm running something similar to what they've done before. 
but I don't preempt how soon that block will have to end. So I'll often extend a block by a week or two at a time and I let their progress within the block sort of inform what types of targets we're setting for them towards the end of the block. Yep. So, um, so there is that. But then where the complicated thoughts come in is I'm very, um, I'm very aware of the fact that sort of the more decisions I make as a coach, the more chances I have to fuck things up or impart my own biases on what's going on in front of me. Um, and so one of the reasons why I've resisted writing training each week on all my athletes, um, for all of my athletes is just because I think I just make too many decisions. And so I think when you do something like that, your your sort of default position has to be basically change nothing and keep doing what you're doing to avoid you just making arbitrary changes and having training turn into random stuff, you know? I'm sure that you're quite pragmatic with it, but I just think for me, I think too much. Yeah, I think like when I do this program update, it takes me like three minutes because it's like copy the week, change change the things, keep things moving in the correct direction and that's it. Yeah. So it's not like I'm... I'm not taking out exercises and changing number of sets and like it's all quite static. Yeah. I mean, um, I do, to be honest, a similar thing. When I get a weekly update from a client, if I'm like, oh, these sixes should become five so you can keep adding load, mm. like that's a one minute change. I do that anyway. So yeah. we're not that different. Yeah. And and I still do what you were saying before as well. Like the, the athletes who I've been coaching for a longer time, like I have an idea of how long they're going to be able to train for. So I might write them a five-week block knowing that I'll probably have to add one or two weeks or and then if if it's the case that we stop at five then we just stop at five and we we go again so like I still do that for some lifters you know write a block out predicting and then if I have to add a week or two then we do that yeah so it's basically just like less rigid adherence to the plan and more sort of having a plan so that you can adjust it yeah and 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 I think a really good thing for... It's been a really good thing for athlete buy-in is like something that I used to do when I used to get my programs in blocks is I'd go straight to the last week and be like, all right, what am I doing? Yeah. And I, and I know a lot of people do this. And I think if you focus on the task at hand, the session at hand, you're probably going to be more immersed in each individual session. So you're probably going to actually accelerate results. Um, and this is something that Matt Bartholomew... Bartholomew used to get um, his coach Andrew Tang to do was to send him one session at a time. So he'd he'd have his five training days, and Tang would send uh, he'd send them at the start of the week, but they'd all be in five separate PDFs. So he'd only open it thirty minutes before training, right? And he he wouldn't know what he was doing until thirty minutes before training. So it took away it took away some of the stress um, for like you know predicting what he has to do, and but also it actually had some negative negatives for him in that he was actually a little bit anxious about what was coming he wasn't able to like conceptualize in his head what his warm-ups were going to be and stuff like that so i think there is a sweet middle ground yeah i was gonna say i'm much more on the end of the spectrum of like i like to be able to sort of reconcile today's effort against a longer term plan Mm. you know like to be honest since i've moved to weekly program updates when a client messages me midweek, I'm like, why are you so obsessed with me? Like, give me some space. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea of sending a client like daily program updates to me would just be stressful. But at the same time, I completely like, I completely commiserate with Matt's idea of like wanting to be present and in the moment. Yeah. You know, and I think like that is something that I did work on during the start of the year. I had some time with a sports psychologist um, that was really, really helpful for me. In fact, we should get her on. Um, Who's that? Amelia Potter, oh, Potter she now yeah. works with TSA. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I had one more point. Um, 
Go on. Similar to what you were saying before, like I have a discussion with the client at the start of the block and I say, you know, this block is going to be somewhere between X and Y weeks and we're going to aim for, you know, X and Y numbers at the end of this block. And then we just progressively get our way there over the course of the weeks. And if it happens to be four weeks, if it happens to be nine weeks, then so be it. Sure. By the way, just there's a glowing testament to Alex's, you know, um, emotional awareness there. Here I am talking about my psychology my psychological issues and he just interrupts and goes i was talking actually yeah like king of empathy over here um but one of the things that i worked, hey I man, worked i'm gonna with, be a dad soon i don't have time for you i don't have time for your your bullshit dude you're gonna have dad strength i reckon your total hits 900 in like six <laughs> months um no no one of the things i was working with with amelia was also being able to be present within sessions and so the reason like to go back to me joking about like clients wanting to talk to me during the week or whatever everybody needs different processes to help them find that productive mental training zone and everybody needs to frame their training different ways and so for me creating space around my training to do some of that forethought is very helpful and sort of set discrete goals think about what i did last week look at the longer term all of that puts me in the right frame of mind where some other people actually need to shut that information out and be much more like zeroed in you know yeah and and actually being in lockdown has helped me stay in sessions a lot better and you know this was in my notes later but i'll just say it now um i'm actually not even going to join the gym when i when the gym's open again in a couple weeks um because i've been enjoying being on my own and being using that time to be with myself and my body um and i've started writing down the time i'm going to do each one of my sets at the start of my session so that i'm much more efficient and you know just those things not getting distracted by other people in the gym um not not having to spot a load for anyone else it's just that's my time to do my thing and and it's been like super super productive and honestly this this lockdown has been the most productive three week three months of training of my whole life that's crazy um let's let's go on to lockdown lessons and things then um because we're not too far from wrapping this up so i want to talk about things that have surprised us in lockdown alex how surprised are you about how jacked I've stayed? Well, you're wearing a jumper now and <laughs> yes. you haven't given me any flex and you haven't sent me nudes in ages. So I'm actually not... <laughs> you're a married man, sure. so I can't, I can't do that. Um, it hasn't stopped you in the past, Will. No, that's true. Um, it's actually, it feels more fun because it's more naughty when you're married. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, no, I want to talk, um, talk about sort of something that I've expressed to a lot of clients in the last few weeks, which is... We, um, Kyle Dobbs wrote a post that I think really articulated this well um, which was thinking about sort of motivation and what drives us to do things and I mean that is exactly mo- what motivation is but um, but he spoke about how there's like you can think of like your just general likingness of an activity as like an extrinsic driver towards it right and so lots of people are like oh you know it's easy for coaches to train because they like training mm which broadly speaking is true. Like I like exercise. I've publicly said that a lot of times, so I'm not going to wind it back. But your willingness to continue to engage with something very effortful and occasionally mundane or repetitive in the longer term, particularly once you start hitting stumbling blocks, is rarely, like it's rarely enough to just be like, I like it because there's going to be times when you don't really like what you're doing. So you need some stick to And that generally comes from what you are doing serving a deeper intrinsic need that might be tied to your identity so you're you know you want to like you conceive of yourself as somebody who is 
a strong and powerful trainer or you deeply want to be a high achieving athlete or whatever it happens to be and I think for me as an athlete the last couple of years being so interrupted in terms of training you know because of COVID and because of injury and so on has made finding motivation to train really hard a little bit harder because it hasn't been able to serve that identity of like I'm a competitive athlete who you know who is high achieving and likes to compete against other people and all of that hasn't been able to serve that as well but then also as a coach it's made things a little bit harder too because a lot of my clients probably feel the same way when they're having to do training that doesn't quite serve their goals quite as well Mm. but then for me as a coach when I say part of the payoff of what I do is helping people achieve you know great things athletically or whatever it is um when they don't get the chance to express those performances and things doesn't mean I'm disappointed in my athletes but it just means that the payoff is a little bit lesser to me as well and so part of the challenge of this past few months but these last couple of years has been finding value in what I can provide other people and then finding value in training that is perhaps separate from just that specific part of my identity and I wouldn't say that it's something on either front that I've found incredibly difficult because there's a lot more to training that I like and value and a lot more about myself that I think is valuable and a lot more about my coaching that I think is valuable. But it certainly meant that the easy payoffs are lesser, you know. And so my motivation to do either coaching or training has not suffered but, but been impacted by it because I've had to make those very conscious changes in how I appraise what I do. Mm. And I like I empathize with anyone who hasn't had ac- access to the the training equipment that they might want during this time because I know personally I'm so lucky given you know we have a combo rack in our garage um, I don't know what I'd be doing if we didn't and like I would have probably gone through a bit of an identity crisis had had I not had that access to to the equipment and um, shameless plug we did an episode with Shero yes. about identity and about you know, being the identity of a powerlifter. So if you haven't listened to that one, go back and do it. Because that really, really, really applies to the stuff that were that you're talking about here, Will. Yeah. Um, the only other lockdown-related thing that I think is worth me touching on very briefly is what I did do and why it was fun. So I've recently been sharing some flywheel-based training. I got a flywheel. It only came a couple of weeks ago. Lockdown's ending soon. Bit of a bummer. But I'll probably keep using it. The flywheel has been really good fun, partly because of novelty. Um, novelty both in that it is fun to do something different, but also novelty in terms of the motor challenge. Because without having played with one, it's quite hard to fully conceptualize it. But the eccentric loading is directly proportional to how hard you work on the concentric. And so on a rep by rep and set by set basis, your engagement with what you do is very, very important. And you get very strong, immediate sort of biofeedback on how you're performing so that makes it sort of quite immersive and fun um but prior to having the flywheel i had a bit of a crisis of like well fuck how am i gonna preserve my ability to do any like high effort high output work and so i was doing the best i could with body weight stuff for hypertrophy um and it was like okay but then beyond that people have probably seen on my instagram that i was playing around with quite a lot of isometric work so I would get a cushion. I have a concrete bench top. It's one piece, so it's not going to break. And I would literally wedge the cushion under the bench top and squat into my bench top as hard as I could for like 
five to ten seconds at a time um, in two or three efforts and then have a break and then do it again. Um, I bring a bench, not a bench, I have like a wooden block that I, I use as like a side table thingy in my lounge room. I would lie that under it and do bench press and I would stand on the block and do sort of weird deadlifts. And honestly, it was surprising how hard I could work and how reasonably specific I could get my joint angles to the sticking points in powerlifting. And so again, that was fun from like an experimental perspective, but you like conversely to the flywheel, you don't actually get very strong feedback on like how hard you are working doing it. So it's much harder to extrapolate your efforts there to like, this is how I would be performing today, if you know what I mean. Mm. And then the third thing was just embracing a bit of novelty and doing some stuff that I would normally not do. So I've been doing some sprints and shuttle runs and I move like a fridge, so it's not very good, but it's it's kind of really good fun to do something where I'm moving myself in space instead of moving things around me. So that's cool. And I've also been swimming. Um, I have some goggles now, so I, I sort of treat myself to a snorkel while I go for a swim as well. I sort of go out along the headland a little bit, look at the fishies, and then swim back in. And if I swim for five or 10 minutes in the ocean, and it's probably longer than that, but if I do that, when I get out, I'm like, oh, I've like done what feels like some brisk exercise if I cover some ground. And all of that has been quite rewarding just for itself. Mm. That's it. How, how's your, how do you feel like, cause obviously you haven't sent me any nudes, so I can't, you know, actually yeah. assess your physique. How do you feel like your muscle mass has held up? Um, I think, I honestly have you weighed I've, yourself? I, I don't have a scale. Okay. I honestly think the last couple of weeks I've had a bit of a bounce back. I was definitely going off the sloppy end, um, <laughs> unfortunately, a few weeks ago, partly just because my training output had definitely diminished. But for honestly, the first six or eight weeks of lockdown, I looked fine and probably wasn't getting a whole lot smaller, like give or take a bit of swell disappearing. Um, because I was doing three or four days a week of, you know, moderate to high rep work on all my muscle groups. There were certainly some that were less stimulated, but it was like fine. Um, but now like doing the flywheel stuff and having a bit of that swell back, I don't look too small or bad. I'm probably a little bit smaller, but like, I don't look like I haven't lifted weights in three months, which is nice. Nice. Yeah. Um, I had a couple more things. Um, one, the first one was quite similar to what you were saying about how coaching is just so different without competition and like for me the social aspect of being at competition but also the competitive aspect of being at competition is something that i honestly enjoy the most of anything in our job um you know watching my clients or even my friends or even my friends my friends clients um watching them succeed and you know that fear that electric feeling that you get on competition day it's just it can't be matched and it's been quite difficult the last two years because you know a lot of people haven't trained the gyms have been closed and there's just hasn't been very many comps even though we've owned the gyms have only been closed for like six of the last 18 months there hasn't been anywhere near as many comps as usual and it's just been um it's just been different and i've, I've really been missing that um the other stuff's not that important. No, I guess just, we can just wrap it up you there. You said you liked having free time, but now you're just bored, exclamation mark. I said I thought I liked having free time. Right. But this is way too much free time. Yeah. It's, just, <laughs> I, it's funny reading your notes. Um, it's not that you're... My notes are written like 
they're not designed to be read. They're just the keywords so that I remember. Whereas yours are like a kindergarten kid's diary entries. <laughs> I liked free time, but now I'm bored, lol. <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up then. Um, that is what f- fuck knows what episode it 124. was. 124. Okay, cool. 124. More seriously, probably going to do this fortnightly-ish. Um, not weekly, but we'll still call it weekly weights just because that's easier from a branding perspective. So I'm Will you, at W.BerkmanPT. I'm Alex, Alex Hayes underscore process. And we'll talk to you when we talk to you. Peace. <laughs>